From high atop Feibusch Media, World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, I'm Scott Feibusch. It's the Top of the Tower podcast. We are brought to you by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellowtech for broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators. Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. We are continuing our ongoing series of crisis response podcasts trying to help you as broadcasters answer all the questions that you have as we deal with the coronavirus pandemic and figure out how to get through all of this and continue serving our communities, keeping our staffs healthy, and in the case of today's edition, making sure that our stations stay legal. There are a whole bunch of legal and regulatory questions that pop up in any kind of crisis situation. And especially right now when everybody in the country is going through this all together and dealing with all kinds of questions about having to go silent temporarily, uh, whether or not you can raise money for outside causes, uh, whether or not your issues and uh, program files are due to the FCC on time and much more. Whenever we have questions like that, there are a few D.C. lawyers that we reach out to. In this case, Melody Virtue. Melody is a principal at Foster Garvey PC in Washington. If you've ever uh, been to D.C., if you've ever been to Vegas, rather, uh, for the NAB convention and the Public Radio Engineering Conference, you have heard Melody speak there. Of course, you won't get to this year. But uh, that's part of why we wanted to make sure to have her on this series of podcasts pretty early on to answer some of these questions. I sat down and talked with her on Friday morning. And just a note before we get into the interview that things are moving so fast. There are a couple of updates even since this interview was recorded. First of all, uh, if you have to put uh, material into your issues and programs list for the first quarter of 2020, normally that would be due uh, in the beginning of April Uh, That has now been postponed, and you now have until July to get that into your public files. But as you'll hear Melody explain, you still want to make sure something goes in there, however uh, incomplete it may need to be under the circumstances. And the other bit of information that's developed since we talked to Melody is that there's been a ruling from the FCC on what happens with your lowest unit rate uh, for selling political ads, because that typically for a commercial station uh, is governed by what the lowest rate is that you're selling actual commercial advertising at. Well, there are some broadcasters out there right now who are giving ad time away for free to help community businesses and make sure they're still around to keep advertising when all of this is over. And a couple of them asked the FCC whether or not that meant they had to give away political ads too. The good news from the commission, no, uh, giving away ads for free will not count against your lowest unit rate. I'm sure there will be more clarification of that as we get even deeper into political season and as advertising starts to pick up again, as we hope it will. So with that, on with the conversation that we had with Melody on Friday morning, where first of all, I asked her what the status of the FCC actually is right now. Staff is working from home. The building is closed. They are not accepting any filings at the secretary's office. There's a special P.O. box to send things to if you need to do a hand delivery. Although at this point, most filings should be going through now LMS, right? Most, either some electronic, you know, it's LMS or CDBS or something still, or ULS. All the electronic filings are still intact. And the FCC put out a public notice last week about who to email 
with certain kinds of things that normally would have been hand delivered, which they are not accepting now by hand. And those would be what now? Uh, th those would be things like a reduced power or confidentiality requests. There are not a whole lot of things that need to be delivered by hand, but those are a few. Oh, AM license applications are still uh, paper yes. filings. That good old AM paper stuff that some of us still have to deal with. I know the staff is working. I've gotten at least once li uh, one licensed cover application granted within the last couple of weeks since they went remote. So clearly, oh, the they've been very responsive. I got three STAs this morning. <laughs> very early in the morning. The so, engineers like to get up early. Let's talk STAs because this obviously is is a big deal. I, I'm seeing now a number of stations saying they're going silent for economic reasons. The rules there are still the same, though. You've got to be off for no more than one year or you lose the license, right? Exactly. And you do need to notify the FCC within 10 days uh, or request a special temporary authority if you're going to be silent more than 30 days. The FCC is processing those very quickly, and then you do have to keep, you know, be attentive to that one-year silent anniversary because your license will be automatically forfeit. I have to imagine somebody's probably going to try to appeal that and argue that it's a state of emergency, and I'm guessing that won't go well. You know, who knows? I don't want to be that test case. It depends on how this thing unfolds. Schools and university stations, they don't even have to ask for an STA if the station is silent because the school is out of session. But the question just came up for me this morning, and I have not resolved this yet is what do you do when you're doing your renewal? You don't have to do pre-filing announcements when the station is silent for a non-commercial station. Commercials have to publish in a newspaper for now. But what happens when you file your renewal? You They need to check your silence and the FCC won't grant a renewal while the station is silent. That is an interesting question. So you don't you don't know the answer to that yet? I do not. That's one thing I'm going to have to look at, but I don't know it yet. And new things are popping up every day. We will have to find that out. Is there, you know, I know we've already seen the announcement from the FCC that the FM auction that was slated for the end of April has been postponed indefinitely. Is there any sense yet? Is there any discussion of whether maybe some of these renewal filings might also end up getting delayed? We've been wondering about that. There was a rumor going around about two weeks ago, whether the FCC was going to delay. I have not heard anything official. I have not seen anything official. I know we had a lot of EEO audit responses due this last Monday and the FCC staff was very gracious and attentive and prompt in granting requested extensions of time. But I don't think they, I do not think they're gonna do a wholesale extension of time because the electronic systems are still working you still have renewals due April 1 for some states. You still have annual EEO public file reports due April 1 for some states. And quarterly issues programs reports still need to be uploaded 10 days after the end of the quarter. I do not see that they're going to do a blanket extension of those deadlines. However, what I'm recommending, particularly for those stations like doing quarterly issues programs lists, and they don't have access to their documents because they're stay-at-home states for now, is to uh, put in an explanation as to why the 
quarterly issues programs report was uploaded late and explained the situation. You know, it was COVID-19. We were kept out of our offices. We did not have access to documents and we uploaded this as soon as we could. And if you could put in that explanation now for when it's due, if you're not able to do the full report, that's, that's okay too. It's just that at renewal time, you'll need to explain it. And it would be nice to have that explanation made contemporaneously with when you uploaded your quarterly issues programs report. And circling back around, I know this is the case with some of these college stations. We'll talk more about the details of that, but I know there are some that are just running completely unattended on automation right now because nobody's allowed in to to program them. What do they put in if they can't run any public service programming right now? Are they better off just going silent, not having to explain that? Or is there an explanation that they can put in the file about that? I think that they should put in an explanation. What I am seeing is that a lot of stations, non-commercial stations at least, are setting it up so that they, the volunteers are not welcome. They don't come, but there are few employees are, are remotely programming the station from home studios. They're scrambling to set that up. So hopefully they can manage to do something like that. Everything's going to need an explanation if it's become an issue. We are in extraordinary times. And a question from one reader who takes care of a college station that he can't access. What about running required weekly tests? Are they, if you put an explanation in, into the log saying that you can't get there to run them, is that is that going to? Right, well, that, if they're not automated, that's what they're going to have to do. And also, there they might be able to get access to the school, depending on this, their jurisdiction. But the um, Department of Homeland Security did issue sort of un blanket, at least till the end of May, emergency access papers like they do during hurricanes when people need access to fuel and to uh, facilities that they need to get past things, pick places that may be restricted we circulated that. I know NAB put out, got those uh, those passes, I guess you'd say. But of course, you know, the local jurisdiction could say no, but at least it's something to show someone that you're, you're a first informer, so to speak, and that you need access when other people would not. And those questions were coming up about two weeks ago. I had how to get access. And, and sitting in my car, and I'm wondering if push comes to shove, it's just a, a laser printout that, you know, anybody could have. I'm wondering how much the local authorities are actually going to pay attention to that. If, right. If but, you know, if you have your ID with you and you have something that shows that you're affiliated or associated with a station that you need access because you're a first informer and you're communicating important emergency information to the public, maybe you can talk your way through it with those passes. So <clears throat> getting back to the college stations, the FCC, I know, had said that, that they don't have to operate for now. It's considered to be a school break. Is there has there been guidance in writing from the commission on that, or is that just sort of an informal thing right now? It, there was a public notice that was released about a week ago for procedures during the FCC's you know this COVID situation, and that that was one of the things that they addressed in the public notice that educational institution stations would not need to file STAs because it would be treated like they are normally when they're on school break. And if that they're would, silent. 
And that one-year rule will still apply, obviously, to them, too. Well, that's the question mark. Uh-huh. That's the one I, that's what we started with, the one I don't know the answer to. Interesting. Interesting. What other questions are you hearing right now? What what issues are coming up from you on a legal end? Well, the very first one I received about two weeks ago was that emergency access issue. You know, what happens if they're not allowed into their buildings? And we that's when we found out and circulated to our clients that NAB had been working with uh, DH, Department of Homeland Security, and had gotten those passes. So that was the first one. Then I'm getting a lot of fundraising questions. Uh, CPB funded stations are not allowed to fundraise for third party nonprofits. The rule for non-commercial stations is you are only allowed to fundraise for yourself unless you're, but if there's a, a, an exception for that for non-CPB funded stations, they can actually fundraise for third party nonprofits up to 1% of their time, but CPB funded stations are not allowed to do that without a waiver. And the waiver is submitted in a letter to the FCC. And I got one for one of my clients that was granted in three hours. You basically just have to explain how long you're going to have the fundraiser, what the third party nonprofit is, and how you're going to do the fundraiser. It's like it used to be before that 1% rule was enacted for non-CBB funded stations. So the FCC will is re- responding. They're working remotely, and we were able to get that for one of our clients. I'm clarify, also getting this, what's that? I was just going to say to clarify because this question actually came up at one of my stations the other day. That applies just strictly to fundraising. You can certainly put awareness out there saying, "Hey, these are the groups that are looking for assistance." If you're not actively doing the fundraiser for them, right? Oh yes, and then there's also it's sort of counterintuitive, but you know, we're this is pledge season, and a lot of stations have put their pledge drives on hiatus or trying to come up with creative ways. And the it's true that you can treat as part of you've already interrupted your regular programming for your own pledge drive, right? So you can have that the, you'll contribute to a particular nonprofit as a in a premium essentially or to induce people to contribute to the station so long as the station receives that money and is the station's the one that writes the check to the nonprofit definitely the sort of thing any station is going to want to talk to their lawyer about and get specific advice for specific circumstances sure um and we've seen, I mean, that, that fundraiser rule, the waivers certainly have been granted before for things like hurricane relief, and we've, we've seen this before in other circumstances. Yes, and I did get one for COVID-19 last Friday. So you uh, you started saying there was another question that had come up as well? Other questions. We've had questions for, uh, for television, like PBS stations that want to stream religious services on Sundays. And that's not an FCC prohibition. Non-commercial station can stream, but PBS has a prohibition on any religious services on its stations unless you get a waiver from PBS. So we had one of those questions. How willing was PBS to look at that waiver? I think that that one's under review. They're certainly sensitive to that now that it's been raised. I know too. There was uh, there was a notice from the FCC saying that even though they generally 
want notices put in public files about news gathering agreements between different news entities. They're okay right now with a radio station just doing something informally with a TV station and vice versa. Yeah, that's true. And that public notice really probably affects commercial stations more than non-commercial stations because the FCC has a limit on attribution for, of multiple ownership to have local stations that are collaborating more than 15% of the time. So they would need a waiver of the multiple ownership rule. I think non-commercial stations can do that informally without getting a waiver from the rules. I'm wondering, too, you know, the simulcast rule has already been something that the FCC has taken some comments on. I'm imagining that's something, too, that if circumstances warrant, they'd probably look at waivers if you have to simulcast multiple stations in a market for a while if you're short-staffed. Yes, I think that they would entertain that as a waiver in order to keep the station on the air and to keep information getting out to the public. I think they would. And not so much a, an FCC question per se, but another one that uh, that came up. Uh, you know, stations are scrambling to find ways to keep music on if they're if they're missing volunteers or staffers can't get in or what have you. Somebody asked the question on one of the lists I was on: Could I just let Spotify run my program? And that's more of a licensing issue from what their terms of use are, right? That is, and Spotify's last I checked does not authorize broadcast of its of its uh, music playlists. I, you know, I think it, you, the stations have to rely on their own music licensing. And if it's a commercially re- released song, then they can put it on the air. It's kind of dubious as to when you use someone else's uh, program stream, like a Spotify, say a Spotify playlist that has been aggregated by somebody else is their aggregation its own copyrighted, um, you know, do they have their own rights in that themselves? So I, I don't like to come out and say that it's okay to do that. I'm sure it happens a lot in practice, but I'm not going to bless that. There are probably a lot of rules being kind of sidestepped right yes. now. In, uh, well, they, they do that anyway. It's not right even right now, but I think it happens more often than people admit. And probably a reminder, too, is people are finding all kinds of ways to get audio back to the studio, depending on what you use. I know Skype, for instance, wants you to always attribute uh, that the audio is coming via Skype, right? Yeah, they do. Which is why we are using cleanfeed.net right now instead. (laughs) And I got a question yesterday relating to reports of use through these. Again, this came up from stations covered, non-commercial stations covered by the CPB licenses that go through NPR digital services. And, you know, they have, they're putting up old programs, but there's no one there to collect the data for the reports of use. That's an outstanding question. I do not know the answer to that. No one at the station end or no one at the reporting end? The station is not able to put together its reports of use mm-hmm. on the music data that needs to go to sound exchange through NPR digital services. But it would be the same issue, perhaps, for people who are not automating their reports that are using old program streams that needs that doesn't have the metadata in it for the featured music that needs to go in the form that sound exchange likes it. It would be the same problem. Indeed. Another one that I saw that came up, uh, I know Michi at uh, Rec Networks has been 
pushing this one pretty hard is that there's at least one LPFM that's received a waiver temporarily to simulcast a full power station's programming stream, which normally is verboten. These aren't necessarily published rulings, so it's good to get the the scuttlebutt from everybody about what people are getting. Indeed. Flip this on the other end. What, if you had to guess or from what you've seen so far, what are the no-nos? What are the things the FCC absolutely still will not allow you to do under these circumstances? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, you have to start with where they are with the rules, and the rules are the rules unless you get them waived. But then a lot of times it's you don't get caught. It's complaint-driven. And the, I think the one thing that you're exposed would be the public file because the FCC can see that. But I don't know if, you know if there's anything that's untouchable. Who knows? We're in strange times. We certainly are. I wonder, too, as some of these college stations have had to go silent, I suspect there will probably be some pirates popping up on some of those frequencies, and I'm guessing the enforcement team isn't really out in the field very actively right at the moment, probably. That's probably a good guess. I know of at least one of my clients that is a student-run station that is silent. So we were just fielding that question about the what if on the renewal side, right? What if you're silent and it's time to file your renewal? You have to check that box, know that you're not on the air. And the FCC will not renew a silent station. So hopefully this will be resolved. This whole you know, time that we're living in right now will be resolved before the renewal needs to be processed. It's, it's not, uh, not good. Yeah, I sincerely hope we do get this all resolved. Melanie, thank you so much for taking a few minutes. I suspect that probably as this continues, we'll be uh, circling back around to you at some point to ask some more questions we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, no, there have been all kinds of COVID-related questions that have come up this last two weeks, so it's been very interesting. That's and everyone's to trying to make the best as they best with what they have, and we're all scrambling and trying to do that as well. It's a good thing, at least, that we've all gone to the online public files. Imagine if you still have to give people access yes. to buildings with nobody in them. Yes, that's true. The problem is, is when all your records are in, in paper form and you need them to access your information to put your report together, that's not so good. Indeed. Melody, thank you so much for your time, and stay safe. Thank you, Scott. You do likewise. And my thanks again to Melody Virtue from Foster Garvey in Washington for taking some time to sit down over Clean Feed uh, and have this conversation with me. We will, I'm sure, be checking in with her again as many more questions develop about exactly how broadcasters get through all of this from a regulatory perspective. Uh, in the days to come, we're going to be talking about what's happening with sales and especially reaching out to a few stations that are still managing to keep revenue coming in, which, of course, is kind of a challenge right at the moment. So we're going to hear from that. Uh, we're going to have more engineering topics coming up as well. And we want to hear from you about what you would like to know about as we continue this special series of podcasts. Drop me a line, scott at fibush.com, and I will do my best to find the right experts uh, to give you all of that information. That does it for our Top of the Tower podcast. We are brought to you by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. 
And by Yellow Tech for broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators. Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. You can learn more at yellowtech.com. We will be back very soon with still more of this special series of Top of the Tower podcasts. Stay safe and wash your hands.